Hi there, and welcome to Edit Your Darlings, a podcast that tries to take the sting out of editing by talking with darling authors about their experiences. I'm Ariel Anderson, and today I'm joined by Maggie Takuda Hall. Maggie has an MFA in creative writing from the University of San Francisco and is the author of the 2017 Parents' Choice Gold Medal winning picture book, also an octopus, which was illustrated by Benji Davies. The Mermaid, the Witch, and the Sea is her debut young adult novel, which was an NPR Kirkus school library journal and book page best book of 2020. Her graphic novel Squad has already been optioned by Picture Start and Lionsgate for television. My goodness. And she lives in Oakland, with her husband, her son, and her objectively perfect dog. <laughs> Thank you so much for making time to talk with me, Maggie. Thank you for having me. Okay, so one of your recent tweets asked if people want to give the gift of angry feminism by buying your graphic novel squad, and <laughs> I'm totally sold. So this book was in collaboration with the illustrator Lisa Stirl. How did you two work together to decide on the final product? Like, were you really collaborators or was it more like you do the work and then just pass it off to her and trust her vision? Yeah, it's the latter. So I wrote the script for it, got in 2018, I think, and it sold to Martha Mihalik at HarperCollins. And we edited it together. And then Martha found some options for illustrators. You know, I wasn't really given like free reign to be like, I want this person to illustrate the book, but I was given sort of like veto power. But Lisa was both of our absolute first choice. And I was so excited when she said yes. When Lisa read the script, she had a couple notes. And so we made a couple changes per things that she had noticed. I loved the notes that she gave. And it went off from there. And so then Lisa sent back sketches. I had the opportunity to say like, oh, you know, like I think their house would be tackier than this or <laughs> whatever it was. But for the most part, Lisa's vision of the book was so exactly what I had hoped for and better that uh, it didn't actually take a lot of going back and forth between the two of us. Mm -hmm. So it was a real pleasure. Do you remember what any of those notes were? Oh, gosh. Uh, from Lisa or from me? Either. From Lisa. The note that I remember that she gave that I loved the most was, can Becca have a little bit more time to just like enjoy being a werewolf? <gasps> yes, she sure can. <laughs> that was one I was really excited to write. That was one that she gave to me. And then ones I gave back to her would be like, oh, this character just looks a little too mature. Like she looks like a grown woman while the rest of them look mm -hmm. like teenagers. Like what can we do to make her look like a teen or... um you know, it can be difficult to distinguish them in this particular scene because their hair colors are so close. Can we change this girl's hair so that, you know, when they're fighting, it they don't blend into one sort of like brunette blob. But, you know, they're very minor. We didn't have any sort of like major schisms in the way that we, we saw the book coming out. Yeah, it was kind of those questions of casting and makeup. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It was very easy. And then since this is a feminist work, were all of your editors women or non-binary? Or do you think it would have made a difference? They were absolutely all women or non-binary. I wasn't particularly interested in selling it to a male editor, nor was my agent. I remember there was a, when we were sending it out on submission, there was one editor someone had given me a heads up on 
And my agent was like, do you really want to send this to a man? And we were both like, no. (laughs) (laughs) So it didn't go to that particular house for that reason. But I am so pleased with the way that it came out. And I think Martha Mihalik at Green Willow was the absolute perfect editor to be at the helm of this. Mm. And then, okay, I read your 2020 interview with We Need Diverse Books fabulous organization they are. Mm -hmm. And they mentioned that a big theme of your YA debut, The Mermaid, The Witch, and The Sea, is taking your fate into your own hands. So how do you own the editing process for your work? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I think a lot of writers might feel the same way I have in the past, which is like, if you're a people pleaser, it's really hard not to take an edit or not to just do exactly what an editor tells you to do, because you're like, okay, well, Mm -hmm. if that's what you think, then that's what we'll do. And the more I've written professionally, the more I realize how much power you have to push back on edits you don't agree with and be like, well, you know, I see your criticism, you have to still take in the criticisms and answer them in some way. But there are some things, like, especially prescriptive edits, where they're like, why don't you try this or that, that you can be like, I don't want to. And here's why. And I think as long as you can think out why you're not doing that, and you have some sort of response for addressing valid criticisms, like this beginning is slow, then you have a lot of power. And it took me a really long time to realize that you don't just editors aren't just giving you a laundry list of to do's. They're giving you suggestions with the idea that you will take some of it and not all of it. You know, you're working together to make it a better project. It's not just like, they're the fact person and, (laughs) you know, they're the boss and then you do what they say or you're fired. Yeah. Yeah. I try to make it really, really clear on all of my edit letters that, hey, every mark that I've made on this page is a suggestion. Mm -hmm. It's based on my expertise and my experience, but ultimately like the words are the authors, they belong to you. And so you have to own them. And you know, it's hard to look at someone who is an expert and be like, mm, I don't think you're right. Yeah, I think, you know, you should be kind of nervous at the very beginning of your career about doing that, frankly, because <laughs> you're not an expert yet. And so having an expert there to guide you, you should probably should be a little bit more deferential. But I will say that the longer I've been doing this, the more comfortable I've started feeling with being like, well, you know, here are the things I absolutely agree with. And usually it's that I absolutely agree with the criticism. I just don't agree with the way of getting there. And I think that's the harder Mm -hmm. thing for a lot of people to distinguish. Yeah. And then what sort of wording do you use when you pass it back and you're like, I'm absolutely not doing that. Thank you, (laughs) ma'am. Um, I think I do it a lot like an edit letter is sent to me in the first place where it's like, I love this note that you gave me about this. And here are the changes I made here. I wonder if like, I didn't find this particular route Mm. to solving the issue of speeding up the beginning particularly helpful, but I hope with with these changes that I've made that that problem will be mollified. Perfect. Same kind of thing. Praise sandwich of like, I see what you did and I like most of it. Here's the one thing that I took, you know, a couple little things that I didn't do quite like you said, but here are the things I tried to do to address it in my own way. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's always, you know, respectful, just the way that they sent you a respectful letter in the first place, hopefully. Uh (laughs) Yeah. And by doing that, you're kind of turning it into a conversation instead of a one-way street. Yes, which I think is the way it's supposed to be. 
Yeah. It's my understanding. <laughs> Unless every editor is just like putting down my little emails back to them and being like, this bitch. Excuse me. <laughs> am I allowed to swear here? <laughs> yes, you are, ma'am. I should have asked that before we started recording. I mean, so far, I haven't gotten the sense that I've pushed back in a way that made anyone angry. And it's because I am genuinely excited to receive edits. Like, mm. I want to put out the best book possible. And I know that the editor is emotionally invested in that as well. And so for the most part, I want to listen. So really, it's harder for me to not follow an editor's direction than to follow it 99% of the time. Like I'll really try and I really only don't if I can't, I just can't make it work. Genuinely excited to receive edits. That is such a better mindset to bring to it than genuinely terrified. I mean, okay, let's be honest here. There's the emotional process of like, I'm excited to receive these edits. And then you receive them and you're like, I am no longer excited to receive these. (laughs) But, you know, while I'm waiting for them is like an exciting moment. Like I I know that editors aren't mean and they wouldn't have, you know, bought the rights to the book if they weren't interested in making it into something good. Yeah. So let's talk about... Your new picture book. You have Love in the Library coming out in January 2022. So by the time Mm -hmm. this launches, that'll be like any day now. Yeah. So I'm assuming it's completely buttoned up as far as the editing goes. And it's just waiting for someone out there to hit the launch button. Yes, that's correct. It's a done book. That's so exciting. (laughs) Okay, so just looking at the little previews that are available on the Penguin Random House website, it's really striking to me because it looks like it breaks some conventions that I hold dear in my heart about picture books, which is that picture books are about children Mm -hmm. and they are bright and colorful and most of them are in rhyme. And (laughs) this one... wow. We can talk about the rhyming thing later, but yeah. (laughs) This one breaks conventions because it's dealing with a harder subject matter, right? It talks about Japanese internment camps. And then the main characters are adults. Mm -hmm. So did you get any feedback or pushback about that? Or was it just universally loved? I absolutely got pushback on it. Um, (laughs) It got rejected from a couple places who were like, can you change the story to be about kids? And I was like, no, Mm -hmm. this is a true story that children, I think, should be privy to, have an opportunity to hear. Um, I I don't know. It felt very gross to take my grandparents' true story and be like, "Mm, they're kids now. I didn't know it was about your grandparents. Yeah, it's the true story of how my grandparents met in a Japanese internment camp. Oh my god. And so that's why I stuck really hard to it. Was like I'm yeah. not It felt very disrespectful to take their story and to make it more marketable, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so yeah, it it does break that convention and I understand why that convention exists and I think that it should for most of the picture book industry. But I also think that if you want kids to be aware of the real world and to have empathy for adults as well as other children, Mm -hmm. you have to have some stories about grownups. And there are some really beautiful children's books about grownups out there. You know, that's one thing. And the the idea that, you know, picture books have to be brightly colored and rhyming, I totally understand as like a former bookseller 
that's the bread and butter of the the picture mm-hmm. book industry is like you want stuff that gammy is going to feel good buying for the kids and like you know but i do think that the diversity of children's books is important in every possible way mm-hmm. first and foremost within the creators but also within the emotional experiences depicted within them and now that i'm saying this out loud when i think about it many of my favorite picture book colors have that kind of muted palette like i think of john clausen's work particularly always has like a strong sort of like beigey undertone to everything he does like he the red hat and I want my hat back is probably the brightest color he's ever used and I love his work and I think kids do too and I think anytime you think that there is a rule for how a story needs to be told for a certain age group I think you're just begging people to not listen to it Mm. and so (laughs) you little rebel (laughs) <laughs> well it's like because as soon as you start thinking about that rule you're like well but is that really true and of course it's not because most rules are you know bs i understand why the rules exist and why most people should follow them most of the time but if you're going to break them you should be purposeful about it right mm-hmm. and so i do think a true story about adults functioning in a world that these children live in you know it shouldn't be punched up to be brighter or rhyming or cutesier or happier what happened to my grandparents was monstrous. Mm-hmm. It was a horrible thing. And it's an introduction to thinking about racism in the way that it's defined America. Mm-hmm. But it's illustrated by Yazi Mamora, who's incredible. I'm biased. <laughs> but I do think that this is some of her finest work in a career, just like chock full of beautiful work. And she did such a beautiful job depicting the ugliness of the circumstances while highlighting the beauty of their connection Mm. in a way that is so articulate and goes so much beyond simply what I had written. And one of the edits we did actually on this book was there's a page and it's my favorite page spread in the book now where Tama is sitting on the ground and she's reading these books, imagining all these things that her wrongful imprisonment have sort of precluded from her. And it used to have a description. She's like, she read of this and that and the other thing. And then when Yaz turned in her illustrations, both Karen Lotz, who's the editor of this book, and I were like, so we can just cut all those words, right? Because yeah. these illustrations do all the work. And we're like, agree, easy cut, yeah. easy cut to make here, to make more room for the illustration. And so that was like a wonderful moment in editing and such a humbling reminder as a writer that you're what you're doing is a collaboration and in some ways just making room for an illustrator. And I think that she handled it with such sensitivity that I hope that kids will respond, like understanding that the circumstances are terrible, but the strength of human spirit is greater. Mm. And I think that that's something that's done, particularly in the way that she broke convention with the color palette. That's Beautiful. I'm like tearing up in my closet. (laughs) (laughs) I love hearing about these really serendipitous collaborations, finding a perfect fit and amplifying these messages that are so important. She is another person who is absolute top choice for illustrator that I'm so lucky that she said yes. Mm. (sighs) It's hard to move on from that topic. (sighs) Okay. Maybe a little lighter question. So you mm-hmm. are a kid-lit triple force, right, with picture books and YA and a graphic novel. What challenges did you encounter in editing each medium, and which process felt best for you? I appreciate being called a triple force. Mm-hmm. Put it on my grave. 
Um, <laughs> I would say picture books are the hardest for me to write. Mm-hmm. YA novels are the hardest for me to edit. And graphic novels are the most fun to draft and to edit. Graphic novels are the most fun. Why are picture books the hardest to write? Picture books are so flipping hard. <laughs> I would say, like, I have never <laughs> written a full graphic novel script and had it go nowhere. Like, if I finish it, it's I, I'm going to sell it. Like, that's the deal. That's a flex. It is. I would just, it's just like, I, it's the, it's the medium that comes most naturally to me. And so, you know, whether or not I have a story that I can actually finish a whole manuscript with is a whole other question. I start a lot and don't finish them. But when I finish them, mm-hmm. I feel sure of them. That's kind of the same for prose novels. Although I never sold my, the prose novel I wrote as my like grad school thesis, but it was also a mm. hunk of trash that got workshops yeah. to death in a group of people who'd never read a YA novel in their life. So I kind of blame like, is it my fault? Uh, <laughs> uh, that one was like a strange circumstance. But picture books, I write like a million of. And my agent just looks at them and she's like, well, why don't you try again? <laughs> it's the hardest. And I think they're the hardest because picture books are kind of like poems. Like they have to be so slight and every word has to be perfect, and the concept has to be so clean, and the idea of holding a child's attention in that age group is so difficult, and I don't illustrate, and so just writing the scripts for these, like, it can be, it's the hardest one for me, like, I, yeah, I have two picture books now, and one more coming eventually, but, like, I have no idea when I'll have another one after that. Like, that's my confidence level with picture books is like every single one could be the last one. Whereas when I've written YA, just in general, I feel like a lot more confident. I think it's that's the age group that I'm the most fluent in. I have this theory that adults are stuck emotionally at some point in their childhood. Like there's some Mm. age group in their childhood that they still feel an unusual kinship with because something happened at that age. Like, could be something traumatic, it could be something wonderful. But for whatever reason, like that was the happiest you were in your life, or that was the moment you came of age in a particularly interesting way that you've just never been able to walk away from. Whatever it is. I feel like I'm probably stuck at a very sassy know-it-all 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. Love that for mm-hmm. you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that I've grown a lot of empathy since then. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? But, yeah, you know what I mean, though? Like, there's something about that age where you see kids that age and you're like, I get it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it makes writing for them. And I imagine editing for those age groups more intuitive as well because you remember what it felt like to be that age. There's something about that age that still feels immediate to you. Yeah, Mine is, like, 16 years old. Like, that's the age that is just really stuck with me. And so when I write for those age groups, I write with just a ton more confidence. That's been the most fun. Whereas like, if you asked me, what was it like to be seven? I'd be like, oh gosh, I have no idea. Like that's so distant to me now. Mm -hmm. And I would feel the same way if you asked me, what was it like to be 22? (laughs) I have no idea. So distant. (laughs) Yeah. It's easier to ask things like, what sort of games did you play on the playground, right? Those really concrete, because the years kind of blend together. Like I was in elementary school for a number of years and all of those years kind of mush together, right? 
Right. And so figuring out the articulation of your emotional experiences in those years can be hard. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Or it's like it's a more empathetic exercise than that age that you just feel that sort of like, oh, yeah, I still feel that way sometimes. Yeah, And that's why there can be so much subjectivity when you get those comments that are like, I don't know if a teenager would say that. I get that all the time. But yeah. (laughs) Right now I'm editing the sequel to The Mermaid, The Witch, and the Sea. And it's basically like throwing my body against a brick wall daily. Oh, no. I I had such a good time writing it. Like the the draft of it just came out like no problem. I was so proud of myself. And the edits came back. And they're very slight. Like they're not like a Herculean amount of edits that need to be done. But the ones that need to be done are so precise. And I'm struggling with them so much that I should maybe take back my confidence and YA thing a little bit or couch it anyway with that I'm in the midst of just nightmare edits right now. <laughs> well, and I would also imagine that editing YA would be harder than editing picture books because there's so many more words to remember. You know, I find the opposite to be true. Ah! So YA, when you do those edits, the reason these ones are harder is because it's more like a picture book. Like the edits are slight. So you're making minute changes with big differences. Mm -hmm. And those are always harder to do than like, hey, just cut this chapter and rewrite it. And you're like, okay, like bummer. But also that's like very clear. Whereas like when you edit a picture book, it's like, well, if you say very here, are you overselling it? And like, da, da, da. You know, it's like (laughs) every word has so much weight. And so anytime you change something in a picture book, the whole thing becomes unbalanced. And you have to write it again. And that's so hard. So let's move on to the questions that I ask every author I talk to. First Mm -hmm. up, what do you hate about the editing process? Minute edits. Tense changes. Mm. But tense changes are not minute. That cascades. Right. It's, It's not minute in workload, but it's minute in intellectual effort, right? Like it's busy work. That's like the worst kind of edit because it's not doing any of the exciting creative work that editing can be. Because sometimes you get an edit where you're like, oh, it like lights you on fire and they're like, oh, this character isn't clear. And you're like, I know why they aren't clear because I haven't told you this about them. And if I do this, that and the other thing with them, then you'll know. And oh my God, like I'm ready. Let's do this. And like, you're just raring to go to do that edit to like to meet it because you're ready for it. And then there are ones where it's like not an intellectual exercise. It's just busy work, like tense changes Mm -hmm. where you're like, I would rather throw myself off the Golden Gate Bridge. Yet here I am. (laughs) And those are like up there for my least favorites. But the hardest ones, the most satisfying ones to fix, but the hardest ones to approach are minute edits that make a big difference. And that's like that picture book editing those minute character differences where they they need to hit just like a very slightly different tone of voice throughout one part of a book or something where you're like, oh, geez, like it's really, really articulate work you have to get into. Mm-hmm. I, I like being confronted with those edits, but I hate having to do them. <laughs> if only all the edits were easy. That would be great. And if you guys could just do that, I would appreciate it. (laughs) But I love the edits that are like, you're so close here. I can feel you getting to this, but Mm. you're not quite there yet. Like, here are the things I feel like are missing. And you're like, yes, 
Let's mm-hmm. get to it. Anything that makes it more complicated, I'm into. I feel bad when I have to be like, I think I understand what you're saying here, but it could be misread. How about these five other ways of wording it? I love those kinds of edits because at least that's an intellectual exercise. Mm. You're like, well, what are the different ways this could be read? And you get to think about it as the author. And like, that's the fun of writing Mm -hmm. is that kind of craft. Not like, are you in past present or what's going on here? (laughs) (laughs) I have to change an entire character's point of view chapters to from present to past tense. And these edits I'm doing right now. Yeah. Nightmare. Just a nightmare because it's not it's not interesting. But it also can't be done by like a copy editor or something because there's so many choices you have to make. They're just all boring choices. Mm. So. Yeah, I have done. I'm a copy editor, just a lowly, lowly copy editor. And I have done some sort of enforcing where the author was like, I tried to put all of this character's point of view chapters in third person past tense and all of this character's point of view chapters in first person present tense. Yeah. And so I would help enforce that rule, but I'm not going to make rules like that. It's brutal. (laughs) (laughs) It's a choice. Like point taken and I'm happy to do it. I I saw the point that Karen was making and she was correct. That's why I'm willing to do it, but also it's a nightmare. So what's the most common bit of feedback you receive on your writing? That word is too big. Ooh, no way. Children know all sorts of words. I get read to filth on my vocabulary choices at every age level all the time. <laughs> that is like the number one piece of feedback I receive. It's like that word is too much. Mm. <laughs> what are some words that have been struck down recently? Capacious. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which I learned from a Kate DiCamillo book, but I learned it from Kate DiCamillo. <laughs> I don't even know what that word means. Like having great capacity. Yeah. So like you refer to somebody's capacious heart or your capacious imagination. It's Once you know that word, it's a beautiful word that works in so many circumstances. Mm. That's the one that sticks out the most to me because I still love the word. I think every other time it's been pointed out to me, I've like kind of backed down and been like, okay, yeah, I see your point. Mm-hmm. And capacious is one that I did have to back down, but I still feel kind of like, but it's a good word. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on a project right now that's really challenging my vocabulary, which is amazing. Um, Mm -hmm. But I had to look up, right? So they they sat down on a bedspread and it debossed with their butt imprint. And I was like, (laughs) wait a second. Oh, it's it's the opposite of embossing. Embossed, yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Is that for a children's book? No. <laughs> oh, okay, I was going to say, I wanted to know who was getting away with that when I wasn't allowed to get away with capacious. <laughs> but I mean, the connotation of boss to me has nothing to do with, God, just so interesting. Any last words of advice? I guess just to remember, I know for a lot of writers, edits can feel like an attack. Mm. Ouch. I know. (laughs) I don't feel this way because I'm such a perfectionist that like I want your harshest edits possible. But some people do not feel that way. And my advice to people who do not feel that way is that, and this is only true of editors who have signed your book or an agent. This is not true of workshop situations because workshops are different. Mm. Mm -hmm. I don't actually recommend them for everyone. 
But if you are a professional writer, working with a professional editor is going to be part of your job. And the thing that I would encourage you to remember is that they would not have acquired your book if they did not believe in it and that they want the best book possible, like the closest Mm -hmm. thing to your vision as possible. And so, you know, you don't have to do everything that they say, but remind yourself when you receive that edit letter and it says something that you wish it didn't say that they are doing this out of their professional interest too, because their name is on that book and they want it to be the best it can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so deeply ingrained that the editor is an adversary. Mm-hmm. Which is so untrue. It's just not been true in my experience. It's just not been true. It, it's just not true. So. Yeah. <laughs> if that's the relationship that it feels like to you, darling listener, Find a different editor. I would say, I think that there's a thing that happens in like competitive workshops Mm -hmm. where people can be kind of jerks about giving feedback. And that's one of the reasons I don't love workshops for everyone. I know that workshops kind of kicked the crap out of me for years and it took me a really long time to get my own voice back as a writer because Mm. of them. Because if you're a people pleaser, you're like, well, I'll do what you say, but you can't write by committee. And so you end up with this kind of mush of a manuscript that doesn't reflect you anymore and doesn't even reflect them. It just reflects comments they made offhandedly, you know, Mm -hmm. on a manuscript they read 10 minutes before class started or whatever. Mm, Ouch. Well, you know. Yeah, it's it's true. It's true. It's a thing that happens. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, finding a writer's group can be really important to people who you really feel like understand your work and have your best interests in mind and are your friends is a good place to start. Mm -hmm. Um, or just finding a couple people and just trusting them. That's yeah. how I do it now is like I have like one or two beta readers max and my agent before it goes to an editor and then I work with an editor and then I don't show anyone else anymore. That's a flex too, I think. I don't know that it is. I think it just means that I'm so much of a people pleaser that I emotionally cannot take too much feedback from too many different people because I don't know how to compromise at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm not like strong enough to just be like, well, I see what you're saying and I disagree to like somebody I do workshop with. Mm -hmm. Do you think you'll ever go back to that trunked manuscript and try to rewrite it? Which one? The grad school one? No, I think I ended up addressing most of the themes I was most interested in it with The Mermaid, The Witch, and the Sea. Oh, okay. Good. So yeah, it it was trunked for a good reason. It shall never see the light of day. The one thing that I missed from it was that there were spotted hyenas in it. And I was able to put spotted hyenas into the sequel to The Mermaid, The Witch, and the Sea. And I'm very excited about that. And so truly everything that that manuscript had to offer has been covered elsewhere now. You're just so full of wind. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't go that far, but I did manage to sneak hyenas in and I felt very good about that. I love it. Okay, so the last portion of our program is a hot and wholesome gossip corner. Are there any other writers or creators doing something you're excited about? Any shout outs you want to give or people you want to lift up? Hell yeah, there are. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, (laughs) Sarah Gailey has their first horror novel coming out next year. It's called Just Like Home. And it is so good. And also, if you're not reading their comic book series, Eat the Rich, if you can handle a little gore, Eat the Rich is a delight. It is wackadoo. And I love it. It just like keeps going up a notch. (laughs) One of my favorite YA novels I read this year was The Other Merlin by Robin Schneider, which if you want like a gender bent queer King Arthur retelling, highly recommend. It was so much fun. 
I think we all want that. We all want it. Like, I love it for that feeling of like, even the characters who get introduced, and you're like, oh, I hate them. You like end up liking It's one of those. And it's very funny. And they're also dirtbags, which I enjoy. Let's see. Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika mm-hmm. Aoki is like a fantasy sci-fi mashup that is half about aliens who have sort of been refugeed in the United States and are running a donut shop. Uh, which is actually like a cool allegory to the way that Cambodian refugees settled in California, which is like a side thing. Um, And also a fantasy novel about a violin teacher who trades her students' souls to the devil. Yeah. Anyway, and also a romance and also a comedy. Anyway, it's so good. My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones was an incredible horror novel. I've been on a big horror kick this year, um, <laughs> including like T. Kingfisher and Tenen Arive Do, been amazing. And then there is a children's book called Animals Brag About Their Bottoms. And I forget the author illustrator of it. And it didn't come out this year. It came out like two years ago. It's translated from Japanese. Mm. It's a perfect book. And I gave it to every kid in my life for Christmas this year. And I highly recommend it. Okay, which animal has the best bottom? Well, that's the thing. They're not comparing. They're all just honoring the thing that makes their bottom special. Aww. It's extremely cute. It's like a weirdly body positive, adorable little story. And I read it to a class of first graders over Zoom. And now I'm the most popular girl at the Mission Academy. (laughs) And now I have to ask because that reminds me, I'm thinking about bottoms Animals with amazing bottoms, so corgi butts, and then you say that you have an objectively perfect dog. Mm-hmm. He's a doodle. Oh, he has a very bony bottom, and he's perfect. <laughs> yeah, my dog's best friend is a doodle. Oh, I'm a big fan of doodles. I, is your dog not a doodle? No, I have a big black lab. Oh, cute. I always joke, first of all, that he's objectively perfect. I mean, he's perfect in my eyes, but that doodles are racist because they like see each other from across the street and they get super excited. You're like, God, you're such a racist. Uh, So I was like, oh, your dog's not a doodle and the best friend's a doodle. I know that they are capable of friendship with other dogs, but I just also know that they are racist universally. (laughs) (laughs) No, when his best friend sees him coming down the street, she actually lays down and refuses to go anywhere until she gets to greet him. I love that for them. Yeah. They're adorable and perfect. (laughs) Well, if you want to check out Maggie's work, you can find her as at M.T. Hall, that's E-M-T-E-E Hall, on Twitter, and at Maggie Takuda Hall on Instagram and TikTok. Ooh, I'm a big fan of book talk. I'm not on TikTok, but I see a whole lot of it transfer over to Twitter, and I love it. Or you can head to her website, the humbly named prettyokmaggie.com. Be sure to grab her latest books, Squad and Love in the Library, from your favorite indie shop. And thank you again for talking with me, Maggie. This has been objectively perfect. Aw, thank you so much for having me. If you loved this episode of Edit Your Darlings, why not share it with a friend? Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast fix. For show notes, go to edityourdarlings.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at editpodcast or I'm at 
aerial copy edits. Until next week, cheers! Thank you.